The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. This podcast is sponsored by VEPLA, the Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. Welcome to the last edition of PX for 2020. This is PX74. I'm Jess Noonan, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Peter Jewell. Our podcast today is being recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people for me and the Wadawurrung for Pete people, and I would like to acknowledge them as the traditional owners, and I'd also like to pay my respects to the elders past and present. Today, we're speaking with Ellie Davidson from Zion. Hi, Ellie. Are you there? Hello. Yeah, I'm here. Now, Ali, would you mind just giving our listeners a brief background um, of your experience? Sure. Thanks for having me, Jess. Um, I'd like to acknowledge the Arakal Bundjalung people of the beautiful Byron Bay where I'm calling in from today. I have a very special connection to this country, having um, lived here for over 20 years. It's a bit of a magnet. I've moved back and forth and spent uh, lots of time in on other country, but uh, I have a very special connection here. Um, thank you so much for having me today in, in way of um, giving a bit of background. Um, my name is Ellie Davidson. I'm a Balangara woman from the East Kimberley, so that's the top of Western Australia. And I also have very strong ties here to the Arakal people and the Bundjalung Nation, um, where I've spent a lot of my time. Um, so I'm a qualified town planner, having finished my um, degree in 2009 from the University of Queensland. When I was there, I did my honours thesis on the impact of Western planning on Aboriginal communities. I feel as though, you know, one of the things that really motivates me as an Aboriginal person who is also a town planner is um, a sense of social justice and a desire to really make a difference for my people. And um, I spent quite a bit of time in local government. So I worked with development assessment. I worked with urban design um, and I did quite a bit of time in the kind of, uh, I suppose, stakeholder engagement space before moving to um, a private consulting firm. So I was there for five years. And in that time, I helped to develop two reconciliation action plans and also got a lot of experience as a consultant in stakeholder engagement and social sustainability. Um, towards the end of my time there, I ended up building up an Indigenous engagement service offering for the business and then started working with clients uh, in this area that I'm really passionate about. And really, it's about trying to bring voice um, to projects from the Aboriginal community and ensure that their needs and future aspirations are heard and listened to and embedded into project outcomes. And so I feel really privileged to have found a space where I can sort of integrate my um, passions um, for yeah, social justice, planning, culture, community, um, and really, I suppose, help to shape the future of uh, places and spaces and make them a safe and inviting place for all people, including mob. Uh, Ali, the Xeon um, uh, engagement to your firm, um, can you tell us the meaning of the name and also what sort of services uh, your company provides? 
Yeah, sure. So uh, I established Zion in March this year and the inspiration for the name is a reference to a holy mountain, a holy people and a holy community. And I think for me that is something that really resonates in the work that I do. Uh, the branding and logo for Zion is actually um, a reference to my country. It has three cliffs from an aerial perspective and I suppose the more that I work in this space, the more I realise uh, how linked it is and aligned to what we hope to achieve as the business builds and grows. So um, my passion and I suppose the, the areas of impact that I hope uh, we really penetrate is working with country, community and culture. So what we really attempt to do is help to uh, I suppose, support our clients in understanding country, community and culture and really empower the voice of mob around where projects are happening. So I have a range of different projects happening at the moment. Uh, I've done a lot of work in Western Sydney. So uh, obviously with the amount of change that's happening in Western Sydney, there is a really strong opportunity to make sure that the Aboriginal community are taken on that journey and are really considered in any future decisions relating to that country. Um, so a huge part of the work that I've been doing over the last couple of years has really been focused on that Western Sydney context. Interestingly, um, that is the largest Aboriginal population of any region in Australia. So with it being one of the key kind of development and um, areas of focus for the future of this country, I feel really privileged to have been on a journey of understanding country, community and culture myself in the context of Western Sydney and also supporting my clients on that journey of ensuring that those things are considered and are embedded into project decision making. Uh, I also have been doing a bit of work in um, the local government area as well, have been helping to lead Aboriginal engagement for things like community strategic plans. So I suppose there's a bit of an intersection in terms of what I do uh, relating to design, planning, engagement, really helping to come alongside my clients and help them build relationships with community. I suppose I acknowledge that I'm only one person and I can only do so much. And I think it's really important for my clients to build their confidence in how they're going to work with country, community and culture. And hence why I've recently developed some training modules um, that we're going to be rolling out. We've already started delivering them to executives within the Department of Planning in New South Wales. And it's been very well received. Um, it wasn't something that was in my five-year plan. It sort of came about uh, because I realised that there was a big gap to be filled in this space you know as we've sort of acknowledged uh, there's not many people with the kind of skill set and experience that I can bring to this type of learning and training but I suppose the other thing to note is that I'm an Aboriginal planning lecturer with the University of Sydney and I'm really passionate about those light bulb moments that people have when they can see and place themselves in learning and you know can really progress through and open up and 
I suppose one of the things that I talk about is that it's a lifetime of unlearning and relearning. The context of where we find ourselves today in modern day Australia is that many people don't really feel that confident in how to work with country, community and culture. I feel that the education system here in Australia has really failed us in terms of celebrating and acknowledging and learning from one of the oldest living cultures that exists on the planet and we've sort of turned our back on it which is a real shame because I think that there is so much beauty and richness that culture can bring to a modern Australia and so I suppose uh, where I see this training fitting is an opportunity for people to learn and to grow and to place themselves in what their area of influence is and how they can really embed this learning into their practice. So at the end of each session, we have a very practical three personal commitments um, yarn and really encourage people to think about what they've learnt and how they're going to embed that into their practice. And Ali, the work that you're doing with the university is that for a particular course? Is it for a planning course or a design course? So I work across uh, a lot of the units um, relating to urbanism within the School of Architecture, Design and Planning. Okay. So yep. My role is isn't necessarily aligned with one unit in particular. So this last semester, I was involved in four units of study. So I suppose I provide an overview um, and and look at opportunities to embed learning into a number of units of study. But I suppose the the one that I was most engaged with this year was an urban form and design unit of study. So within that, uh, there was a sort of reshuffle of and rethink of the content from that unit of study. And I had the privilege of developing four um, lectures relating to that particular course. Uh, we looked at starting with country from an, a form and design perspective. Uh, we looked at embedding cultural narratives into the design process. We looked at um, like truth telling in, in the placemaking and public arts space. And we also um, looked at how to I suppose, create uh, a framework around cultural design being embedded into uh, a process. So I was really, um, I suppose, privileged to bring that learning. And it was something that I'm really passionate about is just trying to embed as much across as many units of study rather than it just being one elective or something on the side. I think it's really important for us to all be thinking about learning related to Aboriginal knowledges and how to embed it across all of the different opportunities um, for, for learning. So okay. really coming alongside my um, colleagues and helping them to, I suppose I don't necessarily just want to be that guest lecturer that comes in and there's just one um you know, mention of it in a course, but I also work with my colleagues in making sure that we're considering all of the different learning opportunities across the different weeks and how to empower them to speak about um, the things that are really important to me and so that there is a balanced voice. It's not just the Aboriginal person teaching about mm. Aboriginal focused content. That's fantastic. It's really good to hear that it's being really well embedded within, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, within that university because I'm not quite sure um, to the extent that that happens across Australia or at, at other universities. You might know a bit more about that, um, Ali, but um, yeah, fantastic to hear and fantastic to hear that it's not just within one 
uh, particular course. So that's great. Yeah, the Planning Institute of Australia has recently um, changed its accreditation to require more Indigenous knowledges to be embedded. And I think that many universities across Australia are really trying to work out what that means and what that translates to in reality. So I think it's one thing to have targets in this space, but then the the practical application of them, considering there's not many Aboriginal people that, um, you know, are qualified and have experience. And so I think it is definitely a journey, but I definitely commend um, PIA in making that commitment and changing the accreditation to align with embedding more Indigenous knowledges into its courses. Yeah, fantastic. Now, Elliot, also just wanted to ask you um, if you know um, what percentage of Australians um, currently identify as Indigenous? So at the moment, so well in the 2016 census, um, there was 3.3% uh, of the Australian population. Um, it, we are one of the fastest growing um, groups, I think, of, of people within the census. There's a number of reasons for that. One, there's a lot more safety around identifying as Aboriginal uh, in comparison to previous years. I think there's a big momentum shift a lot of people are being more proud of, of identifying as Aboriginal. There's a lot of people, whole families are finding out that they are Aboriginal, you know, because it's been something that's been really unsafe to talk about, whereas now there is more safety around it, which means that many families are finding out that they did have, you know, a, a great-grandmother that was Aboriginal and they're trying to link back. And so there's a whole group of people that may not have identified in previous uh, census um, data, but then, yeah, there's a, there's a big kind of change and shift. I think that there's also um, the way that ABS is conducting the census is improving to capture more input from, say, regional and remote communities. So I think that each time the census comes out, there's a number of layers as to why that number is growing at such a quick rate. But, um, you know, 3.3% of, of Australia um, does identify as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander or both. Uh, Ali, I just, uh, sorry. Sorry, you go, Pete. I, I just wanted to take you back, Ali, to something you said earlier about the need to unlearn things and learn new things. Um, as I think it's part of uni training. What sort of things uh, need to be unlearned? Uh, I think that the, the context of the education system in the past has, I suppose, tried to validate or confirm this idea of terra nullius. You know, we have not had a treaty here in Australia and the fact that sovereignty has never ceded is a really big issue when it comes to planning but just being an Australian generally. So I suppose a bit of a crash course in what that means is that the foundations of the Commonwealth and us having an established nation here is not really legal when it comes to kind of global law that was set and the idea that you can't just come into a country and, um, you know, take over it was either 
through conquering the people, which didn't happen, um, through a treaty, um, which also didn't happen, or if there were no people here, which wasn't true either. Uh, so we have the context in this country that, um, you know, that terra nullius um, is, is didn't exist, that there were actually an established civilization here in Australia. And I think what the education system has done in the past is that it's avoided teaching anything about the complexity of Aboriginal Australia, the, um, the beauty of culture and the richness of what it means for us to have this very deep and long history here in Australia. And so I think that many people have not been equipped with awareness or understanding. There's probably still a, a lot of people out there that don't even know what terrenalius means. So I think that the, the context of where we find ourselves is that we need to be learning that there is a rich history here, that Australia does have a black history and that we have been here, always was, always will be um, Aboriginal land. And I think that there is a lot for us to be challenged by as contemporary Australians because we haven't been exposed to that learning. And so there are assumptions around Aboriginal people and I suppose the context of how Aboriginal people are portrayed in the media and in people's experiences has set this tone of Aboriginal people, um, you know, a very damaged people, uh, you know, we've, there's this, um, I suppose, uh, notion that, you know, why can't you just get over it? Why can't we just move forward? We've given you enough, you know, these, these tones of, um, you know, not necessarily acknowledging how we got to where we are, but why it's important for us to really understand the context of Aboriginal people and acknowledge um, the sovereignty that they've had and the connection that they have here in Australia. So I think that, yeah, it's really about re understanding the long history that exists and the beauty and complexity of that history and how that should influence us today as a modern society. I think the expression Australia has a black history um, has been mentioned um, to, to to sort of emphasise that, Ali. Uh, also, I wanted to ask, um, in terms of bringing uh, um, uh, Aboriginal cultural insights into, I think you were talking about urban design, can you give us some examples of how, how, that, how that manifests itself? Sure. Um, one of my favourite examples in this space is Yagan Square, which is in the centre of Perth. I have been there. I, you've been there? Fantastic. Yeah, it's a wonderful space. I absolutely love it. And it's a really great example of how you can embed many layers of culture and country and community into a design and placemaking process. So um, without being able to, to share any visuals around that, um, there's a canopy that exists on, so basically they um, put a bus port underground. So they had this massive site within the centre of Perth right next to a train station. And essentially what they've done is they've worked very closely with the Noongar people 
And through that process, they identified a number of layers for how um, country and community and culture could inform the design outcomes. So I'll just rattle off a few, but essentially the colour palette is very responsive to Noongar country. There's a lot of ochres, there's a lot of natives, there's a lot of sand. Um, There's a canopy that extends across the sort of top layer of the um, building and that is actually reflective of the way that water pulls and moves through Noongar country. There's a playscape for children that is um, a sort of series of formations of mounds that move across the top of um, this public open space and that's actually reflective of Noongar country and the terrain and landform of Noongar country. So, you know, I could go on for a very long time about that, but it's definitely inspires me in the work that I do because through that process of working very closely with uh, representatives from the Noongar community, um, there's this really deep sense of, um, unique placemaking you know we talk about placemaking um you know responding and creating a very unique um place and a strong identity and I couldn't um, suggest that uh, a different kind of outcome would be better than to respond to a history and a people and a culture that have existed on that country for thousands of years and also I think it's about this contemporary response to country in an urban context. So if you sort of place yourself within um, Yagan Square, you're surrounded by a CBD and yet you feel very placed on country. It feels very natural. There is, um, you know, a sense of responsiveness to, to the country that exists there. And I think in some ways it's about reviving the stories of country and placing people in this very immersive experience in a modern context that helps to bring forth some of what has been lost and revive some of those narratives and stories. I was lucky enough to do a formal tour of Yagan Square Alley at the Planning Institute conference, um, which was held in Perth, I think it was about three years ago now. So mm. yeah, so it's nice to hear you say, or give that background about the um, the placemaking component of it. So um, now, Ellie also wanted to ask, obviously, um, as you said earlier, you're one of the very few qualified town planners who does identify as Indigenous. Could you tell us a little bit about your childhood and how important was the Aboriginal culture in your everyday life and how did that sort of shape you growing up? Yeah, that's a really good question, Jess. I suppose that for me, I, I grew up with my mum, which is my, um, you know, white English side of the family. And my dad has always been a very strong culture man and has always, I suppose, encouraged me me to identify and to explore my culture. However, I grew up in a very kind of white context. And so uh, there's lots of people out there with with a similar story, you know. For me, it's been a journey of understanding my culture in a bit of a retrospective way. And I think given the context of the stolen generation here in Australia and, you know, we have a responsibility as individuals to align and practice and find and revive our own cultural identity and so I suppose for me growing up I always knew that I was Aboriginal and I always had a dad that was strongly aligned with cultural practice however my sort of 
living environment has always been quite privileged. And so at the uh, Black Lives Matter uh, event that we held here in Byron Bay. We were expecting uh, 50 people and we got 7,000. So we were very surprised um, of the engagement in, in community relating to that. And it was interesting because my culture group here, Banyara, uh, helped to host that event. And I was meant to go to, back to Sydney, but I decided to stay because I thought it was really important for me to be involved. And one of the things I said, is it okay if I share? They said yes. And then I went, holy heck, what am I going to talk about? And there was this thing that had been brewing in me for a while that was about white privilege and my experience with white privilege because I am a very fair-skinned Aboriginal person. I've grown up in a very kind of white predominant household and family group on my mum's side and haven't necessarily had that exposure to culture that would maybe, you know, in some people's perspective, help to define me as an Aboriginal person. But um, it was actually really interesting to get up in front of 7,000 people and stand in the strength of my story and know that I've experienced a lot of privilege because of the way that I appear, but I also identify as black. And so there is a very interesting space for many of us to navigate in how we experience life through the lens of racism of our own, um, you know, experience, um, being very fair many people sort of say or how aboriginal are you or are you just identifying for the benefits and the context of how that feels as an aboriginal person is is a pretty harsh reality of where we find ourselves as a nation you know i think that again coming back to the question that you asked before peter that unlearning and relearning i think that there are perceptions here in australia that you know, Aboriginal people are just there for a handout. They just want the benefits. I mean, it's been of no benefit in a lot of respects to to have to navigate this space growing up and having this kind of tension between these two cultures and, you know, not necessarily feeling like I fit in on either side. And I think that many people in my position would agree and align and uh, express the same challenges in um, how we've had to navigate through these pressures of, you know, being, looking a certain way, identifying a certain way, having different experiences in our childhood and growing up. And I think for me, I I've been really privileged to have a dad that has been um, very engaged with culture and has been on this journey called life with me, even if it is, has been at a bit of a distance sometimes. Um, whereas, you know, some people who are just finding out when they're 30 that they're Aboriginal and they don't even know where to turn, they don't know where to ask questions and they have no one to look to uh, for inspiration. So, um, yeah, everybody has a different story and I suppose um, they're all very unique. So I feel very grateful that um, I suppose my experience growing up and how settled I feel uh, in a kind of white world, I would say that I would feel more comfortable or in the past I've felt more comfortable in a more kind of white dominated space, but that's just because of the context of how I've been brought up. I'm beginning to feel a lot more 
comfortable and a lot more freedom around blackfellas now. Um, but you know, that's been a journey for me. And I think that how that shaped where I'm at now is, you know, I've been sharing about coming alongside my clients and really helping to take them on that journey and help to share and, um, see them grow in their awareness and understanding. And I feel that that is because of my you know, predominantly white upbringing and because I feel most comfortable in that kind of context and setting. And so, um, you know, I wouldn't change it for the world. It's shaped who I am today. And I feel really privileged that over the last couple of years, I've been able to really explore my cultural identity through dance, through song, through painting, through language here uh, with the Banyara Culture Collective. And that's really helped me to strengthen and place myself as a as an Aboriginal woman. Uh, Ali, uh, the thing is, I suppose, a lot of urban Australians don't actually meet Aborigines in their day-to-day life. A a lot of them, I would think, or know that they're meeting with Aborigines. And uh, there are a lot of negative um, media stereotypes as well, which doesn't help. But I I wanted to ask something about the diversity in the Aboriginal community. I, I seem to recall that there's something like 300 different nations Excuse my ignorance, but I, I thought it was just a very high number of, you know, uh, um, separate nations. And it would be wrong to take the one approach to all Aboriginal communities, um, given the diversity. Uh, have you got any thoughts, comments on that? Yeah, look, we are a diverse people and even within those communities, there is a very diverse culture. So you have family groups within communities and you have many different offshoots within one community or one language group or, um, you know, a group of people that would identify from being from the same area. So I think it's just like any community, you know, we can't, um, we can't make assumptions that all individuals are going to be aligned and we do need to be very mindful of, um, yeah, the diversity and the complexity of, of working in, in um, Aboriginal communities and what that looks like. I suppose my perspective is that it's better to have a principles-based approach and one of the principles that I really, I suppose there's a couple <laughs> that I'll share, one of them is um you know, genuine dialogue. It's really important when working with Aboriginal communities that you're very clear on the the things that you're engaging about and how that's going, how that information is going to be used and how it's going to inform decision-making. I think it's, um, you know, transparency and being very clear um, with the objectives of engagement is really important in working with Aboriginal communities because there's a lot of distrust. Um, there's a lot of empty promises. Um, there's a lot that has occurred in the context of our history that has left a lot of Aboriginal people um, feeling pretty locked out of the process and feeling pretty let down by um you know, commitments that haven't been, um, you know, come to fruition. So I suppose that's one. And the other one is probably, um, you know, flexibility in terms of it not being a one size fits all kind of engagement 
management approach. You need to understand who you're engaging with, the um, the makeup of the community and the various groups that you might want to reach. So you might want to reach elders or old people and knowledge holders, or you might want to reach youth or you might want to reach service providers. And each of those different stakeholder groups are going to need to have a different approach to engagement so I think flexibility is is really important in that process to make sure that you are responsive to um, the community and not assuming that everybody's going to want to engage in the same way and that you know it it means that you sort of have to be flexible and build a very bespoke approach to each stakeholder group and how they want to be engaged in the process. Now, this is probably an incredibly big question to ask Ali at this point in the interview. So um, feel free um, to give us, I guess, an efficient answer if you can, because I think we could talk about this for probably half an hour. Um, And we do want to get into some discussion about um, engagement and, you know, what what that actually looks like on a practical basis. So um, I just wanted to ask about the connection between country and culture and just wondering if you can describe that, because that's obviously something that we talk about uh, quite regularly within the planning industry. But I wonder whether people um, fully understand what that actually means. Yeah, look, it is a, it's a big <laughs> question. Essentially, you know, as Aboriginal people, we have been given custodianship of the land or country and each part of country holds stories. It holds um, relational values. It really sets a standard for how we are to interact with each other and there is a very deep connection with country which is then embedded into culture and practice and law and we call law l-o-r-e not l-a-w and all of those things are very interconnected so people as individuals have responsibility or custodianship of country which holds culture and stories so yeah it's it's all very intrinsically linked Thank you to Song Bowden Planners, who offer excellent personalised service. Call Dave Song or Dan Bowden through details on our website. Also, we thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au. Ali, about the planning system and the connection with Aboriginal, local Aboriginal groups, um, as you mentioned, there's probably a degree of cynicism amongst the uh, uh, um, a number of Aboriginal groups because of, um, you know, past letdowns in the, you know, in in the historical context and the lo- and the more recent context. How can things be made, or how are things better now that uh, that you're working on? Yeah, look, I think that um, we need to acknowledge that the planning system has been 
built on a very colonial structure. It's a very much a Western system that enforces Western jurisdiction and governance. And I think that what a lot of planners and people in the built industry are uh, realizing is that it is so rigid and it's been based on a very colonial um, concept and to really think about these issues in in a better context we're going to really need to think about um, the system and decolonizing the system and um there's this really beautiful analogy that's come through in the training that I've been developing. And it's this whole idea of being on, you know, two sides of a river and building a bridge. And, you know, in the past, Aboriginal people have always been expected to walk all the way across the bridge to the Western system and the Western way of doing things. And it's coming to a point now where the Western system and the West people operating from that system are realising the beauty of what's on the other side of that bridge. Now, are we coming to a point where we meet in the middle and we both make compromises so that we can find a way forward? Or are we coming to a point where the Western system needs to come all the way across the bridge and learn from Aboriginal practice and knowledge? Uh, so I think that um, right now we are in the very interesting time where some of these things are being very challenged and how do you fit a very strong cultural law and governance system into a very rigid bureaucracy um, and I think that it's becoming quite apparent that those two things are a bit at loggerheads so um, yeah I think it's a watch this space but um, I think we are beginning to ask the question, which is the first step in the right direction, if you ask me. Just on that point, Ellie, um, I'm just wondering, because obviously the, the town planning systems across Australia vary quite, quite significantly um, across states and territories. Is there, in your opinion, a best practice or I should say a better practice system um, that you're seeing in terms of the recognition and working uh, with Aboriginal culture and heritage? Yeah, look, I would probably say that the example that comes to mind is the Tweed Shire Cultural Heritage Management Plan. It's the focus or case study of our working with community module from Zion Engagement and Planning. And what that has done is uh, helped to identify um, a way to manage cultural heritage in a response that was really designed, developed and implemented by the Mijimbal Bunjalung people um, of the Tweed Shire. So um, that process is... Um, a really amazing example of an Aboriginal person from community, Rob Apo, being embedded within council and working with um, Louina Williams, the CEO of the Tweed Byron Local Aboriginal Land Council. And, you know, both of them being from community and trying to navigate a space where cultural heritage and the integrity of, integrity of cultural sites could be uh, embedded into a very Western system of planning. And so I would say that that is a really great example of how to navigate that space and where that collaboration and co-design and a very strong partnership between government and community was reached. And, and so if you were just starting, if someone was starting off in this space, Ali, um, elsewhere, um, they should look to those examples, do you think, um, to, to apply to the local context? 
Yeah, look, I think that there's quite a lot of amazing stuff, you know, happening around Australia um, that, you know, you can lean on. But I think really it comes down to building relationship locally with the Aboriginal people and community that you're going to be working with. Um, we have so many ideas. We have so many aspirations. We know what we want in our future. And I would say that the best outcomes are the outcomes that are community led. So don't necessarily think you have to solve all of the problems or have all of these bold ideas before you even just sit down and have a yarn because they could be things that the community have been thinking about for a long time and their ideas might be way better than what you could cook up you know in your own um, mind so I would say that yes it's good to to be aware of these kind of case studies that you might draw inspiration from but I think it's important to uh, actually just start building a relationship and understand the community and that's going to take time the the tweed example that I just shared was a 30-year relationship between the local Aboriginal Land Council and the community and the council so I would I suppose just let people know it's not going to happen overnight but you need to start somewhere and building relationship and understanding uh, each of the kind of priorities from both sides of that fence is what leads to the best outcomes. Yeah. Ali, it's well recognised that traditional owners have distinct cultural rights and responsibilities to care for country uh, and must be included in the decision making. Um, but there, there's uh, situations where there are Competi there's competition for resources. Um, I'm thinking of in Victoria, there's an area to the west called the Grampians, which is a large national park. And recently, it's one of the best climbing places in Australia. And uh, Parks Victoria have excluded a number of sites um, from uh, climbing on the basis that it, it uh, may impact or does impact on Aboriginal heritage. How do we how do we reconcile the the different competing needs in all these things? Because there's there's lots of different groups. Um, any any thoughts on that? I know you're not probably not familiar with the Grampians, but there would be other examples of um, sort of competition for resources. Yeah, look, I am um, quite aware of that example and and help to do some engagement on, on another Parks Victoria. Um, project which was quite similar in terms of developing a plan of management around how to navigate through all of these competing uses and what that looks like. Uh, I you know firmly stand by the, the statement always was always will be and I feel that in that we need to promote and um, you know, protect and respect uh, the areas that are of special significance to Aboriginal people. I think when you think of these examples, it's generally where there are, you know, national parks or um, areas that are, are governed by different parts of, of government as a, a place of um, natural environment that should be conserved. And, you know, Aboriginal people have already lost so much, you know, the, the places that have been urbanised and, and how much has been, um, I suppose, 
I don't even know if sacrifice is the right word, but um, the amount of change that has occurred, I do really feel that it's important for us to listen to Aboriginal voices when it comes to uh, decision-making about the future of sites where there is still a lot of cultural sensitivity. And I would say that um, the voice of Aboriginal people should be elevated in those circumstances because, as we spoke about before, culture, country, identity community it's all so interwoven and you know removing something or damaging something that's sacred can have serious health issues for aboriginal people and i think you know beyond um you know people who want to enjoy um leisure activities and and people would say well it's a, a health impact for me to not be able to um engage in activities that bring um, positive well-being impacts and I think that you know that's that's all well and good but um, you know Aboriginal people have, have already lost so much and I think it's really important for us to be considering uh, what it looks like to preserve conserve and promote the voices of Aboriginal people in these processes. I think that also just goes to show, Ali, that the the work that you're doing um, through Zion Engagement and Planning is so important and has such a significant role in in this kind of space. So, um, you know, I look forward to seeing what you're able to achieve in years ahead and, um, yeah, the types of projects that you'll be working on. Yeah, we're not short of opportunities at the moment, which is a a challenging but um, great place to be. Yeah, exactly. Except I need a holiday, Jess. <laughs> uh, Ali, I understand, I understand also that you're the seventh generation descendant of William Bly, um, uh, famous as being the fourth a governor good of New South Wales and the <laughs> Rum Rebellion and yeah. also probably more famous for mutiny on the bounty. Um, your connection to, uh, I think he was an admiral in the end, William Bly. Yeah, on, on through my mother's side, I'm a seventh generation descendant of Captain William Bly and I suppose um, you know my my grandpa was a captain in the Navy and my auntie and her partner are very avid sailors and I have a very strong connection to um, that side of my history as well and I feel that um, the way I describe it is sort of being caught in the crosswinds like I, I do have this sense of social justice uh, I don't know if a um, a career in politics is on the agenda, maybe local government one day, who knows? But um, I do feel, um, you know, most of my clients and most people that I work with are, are government. And so I do have an affiliation, I suppose, to um, the, the history that exists on that side of my heritage and the connection that I have um, to some of the things that, you know, he helped to establish. I suppose a lot of people are like, oh, well, which song, which side do you more strongly identify with? And for me, it's not necessarily about that. I feel that uh, holistically I'm made up of such strong heritage on both sides and I feel that that has helped me to be positioned in the era of influence that I have right now. And, you know, I suppose that I just do my best to try and navigate a space between both of those. Um, and, yeah, I feel really privileged to be connected um, to such a strong history and heritage. Well, Ali, talking of navigation, your um, ancestor, William Bly, was one of the great navigators of all time. He, as you know, he was set adrift in a seven-metre long boat with 18 people in it. 
uh, was given a week's food and drink and was given no charts and managed to uh, keep all his men alive except one who was uh, attacked on an island. And he took them 6,700 kilometres in 47 days to the nearest, um, uh, to Timor, um, one of the most remarkable feats in navigation history. So um, you've got some very, talk about navigating and crosswinds, it's quite incredible. Yeah, look, I feel that I'm, you know, just as much as I'm inspired by my old people on my dad's side, I feel that I'm privileged to have such a strong connection to an amazing man that was a very strong strategist and um, a very great and fearless leader. And I feel as though, um, yeah, I try to draw inspiration from that as much as possible too, because I don't um, shy away from the the special link that I have on that side as well. Uh, now, Ali, this is the, um, we're coming to the end of the podcast and this is where we have podcast extra, where we ask uh, our guests what they've been reading, watching, listening to, or doing that might be of interest to our listeners that they'd like to share. Sure. Um, I suppose the thing that I always like to promote at, at this opportunity is um, signing up to the Koori Mail. It's a not-for-profit, Aboriginal-owned and led um, newspaper that comes out fortnightly. Um, it's a really amazing platform for Aboriginal people to be sharing their stories through their voice and I couldn't promote it more highly. And you might just find an article with me in the next um, uh, um, issue of the Curry Mail. How, how do you find it? Um, so you can sign up online. You download Pocket Mags, and I just read it completely on my phone or your tablet. Um, you can also subscribe to it getting delivered. You can find it in your local news agency. So I definitely promote it as a great way to stay in touch with Aboriginal issues through an Aboriginal voice. All right. And, and Jess, your podcast extra? Well, now that we've, and um, Ali, we've only just come out of lockdown recently, or I guess more fully come out of lockdown recently. So I've been spending a lot of time out of Melbourne, um, lots of weekends away, which has been lovely. Um, and, you know, just enjoying my freedom again, which has been fantastic. So I haven't really had much opportunity to read any additional books of late, which is a bit disappointing. But to be honest, I've just thoroughly enjoyed um, getting back out into nature and back out to the regions, um, which is where I'm originally from. And, um, yeah, it's been lovely. How about you, Pete? Well, I've got a couple, Jess. Um, I've, I've just finished Rome in 24 Hours, which is a terrific book. It's, it, it takes 24 different sort of people's perspectives uh, on, in a day and night in Rome, and hopefully that will uh, lead to a, a, a podcast uh, next year uh, that Jess and I are planning on Rome, Roman cities, but I've also been diving into a bit of low culture, Jess, and uh, I've have been enjoying Cobra Kai on Netflix, and it brings out the the teenager in me, and also it's not very often that you rec- that you uh, recommend something on Netflix, Pete. So well, Cobra, Cobra Kai. I, I don't know Ellie, if you've uh, ever saw the Karate Kid, uh, but that this is a offshoot of that. Um, it follows the characters many many years later. And the other, the other low culture thing is uh, I'm, I'm addicted to first 48 hours where uh, detectives try and solve crimes in the first 48 hours um, uh, from the States. So 
Jess, a real mixed bag. Yeah. I, I meant to ask you as well, Pete, how are your bees going? Because I know uh, that we've we've spoken about those fairly regularly on the podcast. Uh, well, the bees are coming along well, Jess. I've put some new frames and I inspected them last week. So you might get a pot of honey in the new year. You never know. Fantastic. So, uh, Ali, thanks so much for being our guest. Uh, and uh, I've learned an awful lot. And I hope our listeners have also taken in a lot of um, your messages and, and, and the direction that you think um, we should we should take. So thanks for being part of our little podcast. Thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you for your time. Good on you, Jess. Thank you.